Fantastic job, sir. Great job. And I'm, I'm going to do something different this morning because I'm starting a wee bit later this morning. The Holy Spirit's here. God's moving. The kids are going to come through at quarter two. We're going to share communion. We'll maybe hear a little bit about what the kids are doing. And I will, I'll speak in a wee minute. Once I start speaking, if you feel a moment where God has just landed, I'd love you to stand up during my talk and the person next to you is going to pray. You don't need to say what it is. You might just want to have a wee whisper. I won't be distracted. I mean, nothing distracts me. When I'm in the zone, I'm in the zone. So you can crack on praying. Maybe don't be too loud. Maybe a wee whisper. But just honor what God's doing and pray for that person. So it will take a wee bit of boldness to go, yep. And the first person's always, it's always the big step. But if there's something that just lands when I'm speaking, let's make a response. Let's do something a wee bit different. Are we up for that? Yeah, great. So let's go. Right, so I'm going to give you a wee whistle-stop tour of where we're at up until Genesis 37. Genesis 1 to 11, we have creation, God's creation, and then the aftermath, sin, us trying to go our own way, God's mercy and grace at work relentlessly to bring hope into that situation. Then we have Genesis 12 to 50. It's a history of Israel and God's work of reconciliation. We see Abraham, father of the nations, those who are faithful to God, married to Sarah, who gave birth to Isaac at 90 years old. A miracle, a, ch a child of promise. You may remember a couple of weeks ago, we looked at that. Uh, we looked at Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael born of Hagar, a child of slavery. Isaac's wife, Rebecca, had two sons who were called Jacob and Esau. Sorry, I am. It is a whistle-stop tour. From Jacob with Rachel, she gave birth to Joseph who we're looking at and who we're going to journey with. The second to last child born to Jacob of 13 children. I mean, that's a lot of Christmas prezies, isn't it? We continue to see God's mission of using imperfect people for his redemptive purposes. So we're going to kind of dot in and out of different verses of Genesis 37. We're going to start at verse 1. Let's go. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of corn out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered round mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream and this time the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Then we see Jacob telling Joseph to go and find your brothers. 
I suspect that instruction is because he maybe suspects the brothers are up to no good. Go and find out what your brothers, although it doesn't explicitly say that. He meets a stranger on the way who tells him to go to a place called Dothan. Go to Dothan, and your brothers are there. And we're going to pick up in verse 19. The brothers said, here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Then when Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him. After all, he's our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So for 20 shekels of silver, they sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. Reuben got his cloak, goat's blood, covered it in goat's blood, and returned to Jacob, who was absolutely heartbroken to hear the news of Joseph's death. He says, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. Then Joseph was sold to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials. So there's a whistle-stop tour. There's three observations I want to draw from this passage this morning, and then some responses that we can make as a result of that. And at the forefront and the very heart of this message is going to be around family and family matters. It got me thinking a little bit of some cheesy quotes, you know, for families. Things like, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. Or some call it chaos, we call it family. That's maybe true to a lot of folk, to me certainly. One of my faves are, well, that escalated quickly is my family motto. The reality is family can be very complex. And uh, some of us here will have incredibly, incredible memories and experiences. For some of us here, not so. Some of us will have pain and disappointment uh, marking our family lives. And we see a few things here right from the offset of this Joseph account. The first thing is the realities of a family's dysfunction. The realities of a family's dysfunction. We see in verse 4, the brother's hate and the brother's jealousy. The Hebrew word for hate here is sani, or sani, yeah. And it translates as an adversary, a foe. They were treating their brother like an enemy. This is such strong language here which really shows the depth of resentment here. This wasn't a small disagreement over a brother stealing some aftershave or wearing their favorite jumper. This was deep pain. We also see in the passage a breakdown in communication. They couldn't speak a kind word to him. Their hate ran so deep, they couldn't even speak, find words, find kind words. Everything they spoke about or to, jo- uh, or to Joseph was to tear down. 
It serves as a, a reminder on communication to family. The very fact there's no life-giving, encouraging words shows the depth. It's almost like a gang-like mentality, amping up each other to get Joseph. So we see the brothers' hate and jealousy. We also see Joseph's favor, which actually isn't his fault. Part of the dysfunction is the favor shown towards him. In verse 3, can be no clearer. It says, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. He made an ornate robe for him, a technicolor dream coat, as it's known in the musicals. Part of the dysfunction here, which becomes an issue, is the favor. And it's important to draw out that this isn't Joseph's fault. This is not his doing. The brothers hate, for their father's love for him is not down to him important to share among us this morning, maybe you were in a similar situation. Maybe siblings caught wind of the golden child, favoritism, and you've lived maybe with a level of shame or sadness around that. Perhaps, just perhaps, the Lord wants to bring that weight off your shoulders this morning. That's not your weight to carry. So we see Joseph's favor, not his fault. Then we see how it spirals out of control when it's left. I would have loved to have read in this passage, the brothers called a family meeting and shared from the heart the pain that they were feeling. And Jacob saw the errors of his ways and tears were shed and hugs were had and high fives were had and they had a barbecue and all was well. But there's a progression here. It starts somewhere way before we read in this passage. Enemy hate is declared and it grows to a murder plan. When the cracks of dysfunction and disconnect are not dealt with and called out, then stupid, destructive plans seem really logical and reasonable. Let me just say that again. When the cracks of dysfunction and disconnect are not dealt with and called out, then stupid, destructive plans seem logical and pretty reasonable. I wonder what cracks we're living with just now in family relationship situations that if left could completely destroy lives and go places that we don't want if we don't address. So we see the dangerous realities of a family's dysfunction. That's the first thing. The second thing that we see and we observe from this passage is the rehashing of generational behavior. I want to share a story. It's quite a long story, so bear with me. Try to keep connected because it does have an end point. It's the story of United Flight 232 in 1989. 298 passengers were nestled into their seats. They were hearing the speech about safety and exits. And there was a 35-year-old veteran, well, 35-year veteran who was the pilot, really experienced. They were flying to Philadelphia. One hour and seven minutes into the flight, uh, many of the survivors termed it as all hell broke loose. The number two engine, which was mounted high on the tail, made a resounding boom while they were in the air. The flight panel showed that the engine had failed. Now, normally, this wouldn't be an issue for the captain because every one of these planes are equipped with independent hydraulic systems so that a failure of one would not disable the plane. Now, uh, truth, the, the truth of this is over the entire plane, there was one vulnerable spot to these three hydraulic systems. It was a four-foot square space located in the tail section where all these systems converged. The odds of anything going wrong was one, a billion to one. It never happened. 
In July the 19th, 1989, the, the odds were against this flight. At 3.09, they experienced total hydraulic failure. Everything didn't work. Nothing functioned. And uh, they had to make the crew and the captain assess the, the situation. They managed to direct the plane by varying the thrust of the remaining engines. They managed to land somehow. Sadly, nearly half of the passengers lost their lives. Investigation found that a fan disc had exploded with shrapnel being fired into that four-foot square space. Staying with me? The investigation didn't stop there because the fan disc for a jet engine is so specialized. There's paper trails that lead to the investigations back to the titanium from which this was made and forged. It was determined that the process performed years ago led to this crash. For parts of the jet aircraft are, for, are forged when molten titanium is subjected to hammering force and intense pressure that's almost unimaginable. 50,000 tons of pressure are exerted onto this liquid metal to eradicate any trace of gas bubbles that might be trapped inside. In the report that was issued, it was found that the process used at the time left a tiny amount of nitrogen in a particular piece of titanium, which the fan disc was made microscopic pockets were formed inside the titanium, which would lead to the metal fatiguing and the disintegration of the fan disc. It took 15 and a half thousand takeoff and landings before that happened. What's the moral of the story? I'm sure you're hanging on the moral of the story here. Flaws in the very formative stages, even small ones, can lead to disaster later. One of the most common uh, dynamics in dysfunctional families is the children grow up and repeat the same patterns that they see in mom and dad. Each generation adds another link onto the chain of pain that can seem unbreakable and become really destructive. A couple of weeks ago, early on Monday morning, I was taken through a couple of glasses from our living room and uh, I managed to headbutt a glass. That's why I've got a wee scar here. I, I did not see the glass. I was picking up a plate, and I went so fast down that I head-butted a glass, and it never stopped bleeding for about 20 minutes, and it created a huge kind of half-golf-ball-sized lump on my head. And I had a meeting at half nine, and they're like, what on earth has happened to you? But then I had a realization when that happened, and my realization was, I am just like my dad. I am just like my dad. It's the kind of thing that he would do. It's the kind of thing that I, I seem to have inherited from my dad. But the reality is that we can, he would always bang his head on cupboards, always have plasters and scars and all sorts of stories. It's funny the little quirks that we inherit, isn't it? But the reality is, as well as things that seem quite funny, we can inherit things that uh, aren't great, patterns of behavior. And we see this in this passage. Jacob carries on the same destructive behavior to Joseph that he himself had seen in his own story around parental favoritism in his own life and Esau's. Yet he went down that same road himself. Genesis 25, 28, we read that Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. We then read of Rebekah getting her favorite to pretend to be Esau to steal Isaac's blessing before he dies. Then grudges materialized and Esau vowed to kill Jacob. Jacob's seen the destruction of favoritism. He's seen it firsthand. Yet there was a rehashing and a recycling of generational behavior that continued. 
I wonder what actions, approaches, way of parenting, relational living, married life, friendships, we identify that we are encouraged by and we give thanks for this morning. But I wonder what things that the Holy Spirit is highlighting for us to ask Him to break off. Maybe it's favoritism. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's lack of affection. Maybe it's our words and the power of them to bring life and death. Maybe it's how present we are. What are we seeing? What's the Holy Spirit highlighting right now that we need to just respond and go, not on our watch, not on our watch. Break it off. Holy Spirit, break it off. No more, no more, no more. So we see the rehashing of generational behavior. And we also see the reminder when even there's no mention of God, He's there. I felt it was important to add, there's no mention of God in this chapter. It's all pretty grim for Joseph. But for those of us that know the story and as we journey through, it turns out okay. And there's a reminder that when there's no mention of God, He's still there. There's encouragement for those of us who perhaps have family who don't know Jesus this morning and go back to homes where there's a tension to fully live our faith. When there's no mention of God, He's there. I was at a gathering this week with vineyard pastors around Scotland. It was so sweet to catch up with them and uh, just worship and minister and get a bit of teaching. There was about 20 of us. And one of the guys just shouted out in the ministry time, it's inconceivable whether there's four, 400, 4,000 of us that the God of the universe is not with us and eager to move among us. I was like, oh, that's a word. That's a word. That's a word when we gather in our life groups and there's only three of us that turn up. That's a word when we're out for a walk by ourselves. It's inconceivable. He's eager to meet with us. He's here now, and He will be with us even when there's no mention of His name in the workplace where it's really tough, at home, in the baby group, the friendship. I want to encourage us this morning, take heart. Take heart. When there's no mention of God, He's still there. He's still there. So to close, there's a response, a chance to respond. Just check the time here. We're okay, actually. I've, you might need to slow down this if you listen to it again. I've spoken really fast. I already speak fast. I think there's a function on most podcasts to do that. So to close, a bit of a response. We'll have actually a bit of time for ministry, which is good. A couple of things. I'm realizing how heavy this could be for some of us. But there's an encouragement that for these family matters, this family is here for you. The church's family. We're no less flawed, but there's a focus on Jesus. He's here. So a couple of things that, uh, firstly, an invitation to place your pain at the feet of Jesus. That's you and Jesus. No eyes will be on you. And I just encourage us to take this opportunity. If we know there's some pain that we just need to lay at his feet, this is a, this is a safe place. Secondly, an invitation to break the cycle. I've wrote here, no more destructive dominoes. It's almost like you just take the domino out. No, 
This morning's this, this is the morning when I call it out. The Holy Spirit wants to break those chains of behavior that have bound you, to call it out this morning, take the road less traveled when leaving this place. And an invitation to hear who you are. Not the lies. Perhaps the family dysfunction has tarred you with words this morning. And I've deliberately used the word tarred. Tar is like sticky, isn't it? It's just impossible to get off. And it's like those words have stuck to our hearts and our minds. Maybe the, today is the day that those words go. In Jesus' name. So why don't we stand?